Welcome to DexGuru Talk Show. DexGuru is unified trading terminal. Charting on chain analytics. Trading, the most effective order routing with 0x API. At DexGuru Talk Show, we talk about people and projects in DeFi, Web3, and crypto. My name is Roman, and I am the host. We are conducting a series of interviews with people who build the future of decentralized finance. We are all human beings. At least we like to think so. We believe that people follow people when they make trading and investing decisions. Therefore, we focus on the person, not current news. And today, we want to focus on our incredible guest, John John Clark, co-founder of Float Capital. Without further ado, let's begin. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, John John. Thank you so much for having me, Roman. Absolute pleasure to be able to be talking here. Exciting to have you here. For starters, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and give a bit of a background about yourself. Of course, thank you. Yeah, so a little bit about my background. So I have a, a mathematics and, and computer science background, and I'm actually from South Africa. That's where I grew up. And funny story, I wasn't even so interested in computer science. I started studying actuarial science which many of you know is sort of the path to insurance. And it was actually through that where we got, I want to say, forced, but we had to take a computer science elective module. And before that, I had a very naive interpretation of what computer science was. I thought it was more sort of fixing computers that didn't work, which I found really frustrating, but I realized the power of coding and, and how cool it was. And yeah, I, I, from there, I really got onto CompSci and math, absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, we're building Float Capital, which we'll get onto now now. And what got me into crypto is while working in the space of computer science, mathematics, also having an interest in finance, Funny enough, I received a report about six or seven years ago from my brother who forwarded me, it was a JP Morgan report on blockchain. Funny enough, how funny is that? It was a JP Morgan report um, or one of the big banks that were sort of looking into it. And it was it was really interesting to to read what that report said. I was more fascinated about the technology and I was like, wow. This is sort of, you know, on, on the lines of programmable money. How, how cool would that be to be able to look into that? So it really piqued my interest and I, I started to, to get into it, which was really cool. Um, started to learn a lot more about it and be curious. And as I said, at that stage, when we looked at blockchain and when I read the report, there wasn't much of DeFi or NFTs. It was more very high level hand wavy. Like these are the things that blockchain could help with in the future. Um, but really it just, it just got me thinking and I was curious, you know, how do things like Bitcoin work and um, a little bit on, on how we came onto the product or maybe maybe we maybe we leave it there uh roman and then tell me what we should talk about next in terms of the product i think our listeners would love to hear a bit of how you got into defy initially what attracted you to this industry and uh what were you up to before yeah that's a that's a great question so following my my studies and computer science and, and math. I actually did a, a data science master's degree. And for any of you who are interested in machine learning, you'll know what a fascinating industry that is. 
it's also an extremely forward-looking industry, much like blockchain technology, right? This world is producing more data currently every day than it has in every day that precedes it, you know? So there's just a wealth of data that allows us to sort of use the insights of these data for, for, for really cool things. So I'd actually done some data science work uh, for some companies, think along the lines of, of companies that have transmitters that transmit data. Uh, sorry, these are cars that have transmitters that transmit at speed, location, all those types of things. And it's like an absolute fire hose of data. You might have fleets of thousands of cars every couple seconds pinging in their location, their speed. And what we're interested in doing is capturing this fire hose of data and transforming it and then using models to basically allow us to predict perhaps when one of those cars was involved in an accident, uh, those types of things that you can basically um, infer from all of the data. So that was incredibly interesting. And, and that's sort of where I'd been dabbling a bit before, perhaps before I got into blockchain. But as I said, I was always interested in blockchain since I read that paper. And then now it's perhaps four years ago, uh, my friend and my, my co-founder, Jason, invited me and my other co-founder, Denim, to an Ethereum hackathon. And this was hosted in Cape Town. And it was a really cool, really cool time. We got to meet a lot of cool people in the industry, got to meet Vitalik, got to meet um, Griff, got to meet Andy, got to meet a lot of people from a lot of cool teams, uh, which was really fascinating. And that was really the first time where we kicked off and we started building interesting things in the blockchain space. And we actually built an NFT project. I mean, this was way before DeFi summer and DeFi has just grown from strength to strength, which is really cool. But at that stage, we were just building in the blockchain industry. So funny enough, it's, it's NFTs that brought me to building in this industry. But this was in, this was in 2018, unfortunately before NFTs were, were, were super cool, but, what we actually built then was we built a, an NFT marketplace to raise funds for animal conservation. And it used this pretty cool mechanism called Harburg Attacks. And I'm actually going to take a minute to explain this to everyone because I think you'll find it fascinating. So something that you'll all be aware of with NFTs is there's a limited circulating supply, right? If someone doesn't list their NFT for sale, that NFT could just sit in their wallet forever and just, I guess, do nothing. So Harvard Attack solves that and it makes every NFT always on sale all the time. So you heard that right. Every NFT is always on sale. And how you do that is whenever you purchase an NFT, you're immediately required to set a sale price for that NFT. So let's just say, I happen to purchase uh, to purchase a, a board ape and I have to immediately set a sale price. Let's say I immediately set a sale price of 100 ETH. That means someone could always buy that ape from me for 100 ETH. Now, the obvious question is, right, well, why don't I just set my sale price for 1,000 ETH or 10,000 ETH, right? Because then no one's going to buy it from me perhaps and I can just keep it to myself. Well, the catch is whatever sale price you list your NFT at, you have to pay what's called Harburger tax. And that is a percentage of that sale price every month in order to maintain 
custody and ownership of that NFT. So what that does is it forces you, if you want to price your NFT really high, you're having to pay more to actually be able to keep that NFT. So it forces you to assess the value of your NFT fairly, um, which is really interesting. So anyways, this is called Harburg Attacks. And for those of you interested, uh, this platform was was called Wildcards that we built. And it was really cool. It, it stemmed out of that hackathon. And we managed over the process of a year or so to raise uh, near $200,000 for 30 different animal conservations around the world with this um, innovative model and yeah it was really great I think the timing could have been better this was mostly in 2019 and I, I think NFTs weren't as, as prevalent back then but yeah it was it was an incredible experience and it was at that point building that project we started to look into other spheres of blockchain now this is around you know 2019 and see all the the other innovation being done in the space you know the likes of ethland becoming Aave, uh compound you know sort of DeFi summer and we started to gain inspiration from a bunch of those projects i mean uh it was it was just fascinating to see those those DeFi projects and and that's really what got us to to pay more attention to the DeFi space as i said we always had interested in these economic mechanisms such as harburg attacks and yeah, we were drawn. We were drawn into it. It's such a cool space, right? Animal conservation is a great cause to create NFT marketplace, greater than exchanging PFPs. <laughs> I guess so. And uh, what was your aha moment in transition to DeFi? What was the point of no return? Sure. That Hello, is... can you hear me? Yep, yep, I can hear you. Great question. Uh, what was what was the aha moment? Um, so that that is a, a really great question. I would say, sure, the aha moment was was realizing the power of, I guess, programmable money. This this was when we were launching the NFT marketplace. The fact that we could create this borderless funding model and just realize that money can be programmable it's it means everything can be settled transparently and immutably and it's all beautiful and it lives publicly on the blockchain so i think the aham was perhaps when we we launched our first set of smart contracts on ethereum mainnet and that was just the coolest thing ever i think it was uh 2017 or 2018 when we deployed our first contract and we had our first buyer of the first nft and it was just like wow this works and we we're raising funds for animal conservation right now and that that first transaction hash the deployment 2018 that has to be it it was just like wow this is this is real this is really cool what was DeFi like when you started compared to now? What changed in sentiment? Sure, uh, there was no there was no DeFi really when I when we started. the The, the most like cool thing there was is they got to sort of be on chain swaps, which was really really cool. But I would say, sure, it was it was this this place where it was it was more difficult to build, right? Because you didn't have the likes of Aave, Chainlink, all of these other pieces of architectural infrastructure that you would like to, to build on. 
So I think you were, you were really limited in that sense. Also, there was only basically Ethereum mainnet, right? At least for us, that's what we were building on. There was no concept of other real old ones or side chains or old twos. You know, we were just deploying on mainnet left, right and center and doing everything on mainnet like that was just going to be happening forever. Perhaps, I mean, we definitely realized gas was going to become an issue one day, but it just happened so much sooner than we could, we could have anticipated but yeah, back in the day, paint you the picture. We just deploy on mainnet like it's no one's business. <laughs> have have fun deploying stuff and you know testing on on mainnet, which was was really great. And yeah, not not actually there wasn't a lot of composability. I would say right now, composability is such a big thing in DeFi. Back then, because all the products were being built basically in isolation because there was nothing else to build on. The, the protocols weren't composable. It was just you have like these separate silos, you know. Yearn Finance, for example, could have only been built after there was, you know, things like Aave and Compound and Fulcrum for to be able to, you know, choose between those different money markets. So, yeah, at that stage, it was, it was pretty siloed. So you were in it for the tech uh, before the money Lego system started to build up. Yeah, the, man, the the tech is the tech is the best part. The tech is what gets us going. Definitely, um, in it for the tech, but in it for the tech. Otherwise, we would have left in the last bear market in in twenty eighteen. So, you know, we built through one bear market. We'll build through many more. The the tech is it's it's really fun. And what's cool about it is it just gets better, right? Back then we had. We, we we had no other protocols we could sort of build on and build together with. And now these days we spoiled for choice. The amount of different swap platforms, the amount of different money markets, the amount of different L2s. Like it's just, there's, there's so many more builders and that's just sharpening the tools. And I mean, also like we used to develop in Truffle back, back then, which is great. No shade on Truffle, but you know, the developer experience was super janky to to compile code, to deploy code. Uh, it was just, it was, a, it was a mission. It was really, it took long and testing the code also took long and everything was just, would break all the time. And I mean, now today we have Foundry, Forge, things compile lightning fast. It's, it's just great. The tooling, is there's just been such a big progression in tooling, which is awesome as well. Let's get closer to the tech then. Can you please explain me like I'm five and our listeners as well, uh, float capital at high level. What is it? What product does and who uses it and why? Yeah, that's a great question, Roman. So we have an alpha that's deployed live on both Polygon and Avalanche at the moment. And Float Capital allows you to get long or short tokenized exposure to practically any asset class, right? So just to give you an example, I mean, you can very quickly head to our website. It's float.capital, as simple as that. But it's essentially got a Uniswap-esque interface. So we wanted to make it extremely easy. You know, a huge thing in DeFi 
is one-click DeFi and removing frictions and barrier to entry. And what it allows you to do is it allows you, much like Uniswap, to, to turn your token, so in this case it's DAI as the collateral, into what we would say a long or short tokenized position. So you just simply input in the box, I want to turn $100 of DAI into long, say, the flippening. So to explain the flippening as an asset class, the flippening is the market cap of Ethereum versus the market cap of Bitcoin. And float is an easy way where you could say go long the flippening or short the flippening. And just for those of you, if you perhaps don't know what long or short means, long basically means you're betting something's going to go up and short means you're betting something's going to go down, right? So are you betting that the market cap of Ethereum is going to grow relative to Bitcoin or vice versa? So we have these different markets where it's extremely easy for users to as I said, get long or short tokenized exposure to all of these various asset classes. And what that means, tokenized exposure, is you have long flippening tokens that you could send around, you could use them in other protocols. Um, th there's many different things you could do with them. So at a, at a very high level, we'll just say it's long and short tokenized exposure to any asset class. So anything with a chain link price feed or a reliable Oracle can start to become a tradable magic internet asset. What's the product backstory? How did you come up with the idea after your NFT marketplace endeavor? Yeah, that's, that's a, an, another great question. So we are, we builders, right? And even to this day, we try attend pretty much every hackathon we can attend. And just for example, I mean, we were in, we were in Lisbon. Um, sorry, well, we were in Lisbon last year, but last month we were in Amsterdam building and hacking. And we actually built some new smart contracts for Lens Protocol, which is deploying on, on Polygon pretty soon. And that was fun. So we basically always enjoy building. Um, not taking ourselves too seriously in a lot of these hackathons. It's just our chance to be creative and bold. And we like exploration. So we've always been into exploring different ideas. And in terms of float, we were trying to, to look at current, and this was again when DeFi protocols, right? There weren't many DeFi protocols. And we were taking a look at what was then uh, synthetics, uh, synthetics that is with an X, you know, Kane's project, a really cool project and trying to understand sort of their mechanism. And they have something called a global debt pool and 700% over collateralization. And we were just intrigued with their model of how they were creating certain asset classes on chain. And we wanted to start tinkering with how we could uh, approach the problem in a completely new way to perhaps provide more efficient uh, ex exposure to those assets and, and using a completely different mechanism under the hood. So we were, you know, in those early days aware of other cool projects doing similar things. And we're just interested in approaching those problems from unique perspectives and being builders and, and solving those problems in a different way. So we, I think it was, let's say, uh, this was during lockdown, I would say right in the beginning of 2020, just when lockdown happened, now, around two years ago, we wrote some of the initial implementations of the idea and, and we started sketching it out on a notepad. And at the time, we were also really busy with wild cards and we were really busy 
helping other people. We were actually doing a lot of consulting. We've helped build a lot of other protocols for other people because we needed to, you know, eat and stay alive. And then we, we shelved it for a bit and then we came back and we just threw everything behind it. And yeah, that's, that's its history now. And how did you validate it, the idea, the first steps? Yeah, this is another good question. Well, what we wanted to do is, I mean, thankfully we builders. So we we sketched everything out and we we said, look, we think this is going to work. But thinking, so they say, you know, theory and practice um, are pretty different. There's some cool quote like that. Um, I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember how it's phrased, but there's theory and then there's practice, right? And being builders, we have, we had the, you know, the great opportunity where we could just build a minimal version and interact with it and see how it would work. And just that process of building really forces you to make sure you've considered absolutely every single angle um, when, when coming up with this product, you can't not know how a piece is going to work and then build it, right? Because code is law. Yeah, you have to implement every part. So we had the idea and we were pretty sure it was going to work and it was a really cool idea. But to validate it, we built a, a really lightweight prototype and we asked some people to use it and we asked some people what their opinions were on the product. You know, we'd, we'd been building in, in hackathons on different continents around the world for a couple of years and all of the different builders and people we met, we we would send them, you know, a telegram or WhatsApp saying, Hey, look, this is what we're building. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any feedback? Can you think of any um, issues with it? Right. We always, we're always seeking not bad criticism, but you know, criticism can make a product better. We want people to challenge our ideas because if everyone just says that's awesome, that's not very helpful, right? We are looking. We are looking for people to challenge our ideas, so we could see where the weaknesses were, and that would then really allow us to make sure that we could focus on fixing those weaknesses and, you know, Im- improve the product. So that's how we validated it, just really by friends in the crypto space sending it through to them, giving them the lightweight, uh, the lightweight prototype to interact with. And that that's really what allowed us to, yeah, to validate it initially. I think we have some fiddlers in our audience who want to know uh, how did you get the funding uh, to do this? Hey, that, that's, a, that's a really great question. Um, so it was really nice being builders. We could bootstrap, to be honest, for a lot of the time. The fact that we were building in blockchain meant, I guess, we had a skill that was a lot, a lot of people wanted. So it allowed us to consult for a large amount of our time, or you know, thirty, forty percent of out of our time, and and help others build. And that you know brought in enough money so that we could live while spending time on on this product. But there comes to a certain stage where you want to not spend you know forty percent of your time consulting and sixty percent of your time building a product, right? There, there comes to a stage where you want to, uh, you know, raise funds and 100% of your time behind this. So for us, it was, uh, it was, and man, I, I keep saying hackathons, but I cannot sort of praise hackathons enough. They are the place to be. It was through hackathons that we got our funding. Um, over the years, uh, at, at this was in, I guess, Cape Town, India, Berlin, London, 
Lisbon, we, we grew our network and we met a bunch of different individuals. And when we just started in this validation process, showing people our idea, people really liked our idea and they wanted to back us and they'd seen us as a team building over different years and different places. And, you know, they liked what we were building um, and they wanted to back us. So the funding was, it just came very organically, naturally through our, our own networks of, of people we had met at, at hackathons. So the long and the short of it is, man, if you, if you can go to a hackathon and, and meet some people, it's great. And I mean, we, we, we obviously not raising any funding right now, but just these last two hackathons I've been to, if you're a builder, man, every single VC just comes up to you and is like, Hey, what are you building? What are you building? Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there i think are looking for good genuine teams and i think a lot of them go to these hackathons to try and meet them so go go to hackathons basically so finally was kind of inevitable with all the network you build on uh, hackathons there we go i would say yeah i'd say that's the case what went into building the product how long did it take from start to release on mainnet this is a, a good question. So any of you Solidity devs out there know that coding the smart contracts is really only half of the job, right? You have to test them really well and you have to get them audited and you have to be conscious about gas and those types of things. So uh, we started building, as I said, we, we wrote a lightweight prototype, I think in August, 2020, which was really great. And then we had some big projects where we built some other big protocols for some other people. And that took a bit of our time and we sort of maybe sidelined it for four or five months. And then the start of 2021, we started to really get back into it and pick it up more seriously. And we had a strong line of development, February, March, April, three months that was really intense on both smart contract development as well as iteration and research. As I said, sometimes when you build things, uh, you would never start building them if you knew how many problems there were to solve um, at the end of it, but you just have to start. So, so there were a few things we realized when we started building it, man, maybe we overlooked this. We have to really think twice about this. So sometimes it takes you a little bit longer than what you would hope, but there's just so many attack vectors in blockchain, right? There's, there's oracles, there's, uh, sheesh, it's like you, you're building this large honeypot, so you've got to be careful. And it's almost like people, you like creating a board game. And if anyone can play your board game and exploit any rule in your board game, they can like win and take everything from everyone. So you've got to be very careful in how you design your, your board game is like how I like to think of it. Your smart contract is like the set of rules. So as I said, you know, February, March, April, we were very heavy. Then we had some, some feedback and some more iteration, uh, June. And then I think it was July, August, we had the final testing and auditing, which was really cool. And uh, shout out to Code Arena. C4, they're an awesome organization and we actually do some some judging for them now again where we judge audit competitions, but we put out a bounty of $50,000 and we ran a week-long competition where security experts from all over the Ethereum sphere would 
come and look at our code and basically try find bugs. And depending on how many bugs you find, that's your share of the the pot of the bounty that we put up. So that was a really great process. And luckily enough, you know, we tested our code really well. So there weren't many revisions from that. And we, we launched the alpha really soon afterwards. And yeah, just on the testing, I mean, it's such an important part. It, it might not feel like it and it sometimes can be tedious. But, you know, again, if you're building contracts that are going to scale and handle large financial value, I mean, you got to just be careful with what you're building. You know, you got you got to test it well. You can't just you can't just ship it. So that that took a, a lot of time, so much so that we built our own internal unit testing framework. And, you know, unit testing quick quick talk on unit testing unit testing is you want to basically test every little building block so there's unit tests and there's like integration tests there's a lot of different types of tests and if you imagine you're building a house i want to say unit testing is almost testing that like every brick is sound and that it works and integration testing is testing that like when you put all the bricks together that everything works right but it's always powerful to go down to the to the finest little level and test every brick and make sure every little piece is sound. And that means testing all functions, internal functions, external functions, all of those goodies and solidity. And to do it as comprehensively as we want to, we basically had to add some tooling to be able to do that, which was cool. And we actually wanted to open source and release some of it now. We are, we are adapting it to, to Foundry. Um, so you'll be able to use it on Forge test and uh, hopefully that will be coming soon. But yeah, so I mean, how long did it take from start to release on mainnet? Let's just say, I would say maybe six months is a is a good time. I think these things can take much quicker and much longer. It really depends on complexity, scope, so, so many different things, right? But ideally, I think you want to give yourself six months especially if you're building something that's new and that's you have lots of consideration i mean float capital wasn't any fork of anything else or sort of really lending any other ideas it was like brand new starting from line one of code pure raw innovation like this is what we think is a really cool idea and what's going to work well and you know in that case it it took us a, a a long time or i wouldn't say six months is that long but you know, we needed to spend quite a long time getting everything in the right place. But yeah, that's that. Sounds impressive. Even one month is comparatively long period in fast-paced crypto space. How has the crypto landscape evolved while you were building the product? And does it affect what decisions you have made on scope and features? Yeah, that's... That is that is a really good question. I mean, while we were building the whole of the whole of uh, I would say side chains and layer twos was unfolding. I mean, it was clear at that stage because we built, you know, we deployed all our protocols before on mainnet. It was clear that mainnet is just too gas expensive um, for what we wanted to to do, and and that meant you know while things were unfolding, different side chains were releasing here and there. And, we're actually one of the first to release wildcards on back then it was called Matic. Um, one of the first projects back then, which was cool, but you know, we were relying on things like chain link oracles and are there 
so for us, it was looking at, you know, okay, well, there's Binance Smart Chain, which is doesn't have Aave. It's got like Venus, which is maybe okay. It's got Chainlink Oracles. Oh, okay. Uh, Chainlink Oracles have just launched on Polygon. Cool. Now we can build there. But like that was it in terms of the options. There wasn't Arbitrum. There wasn't Optimism at the time. Like there, there wasn't many other things. I'm not sure if Avalanche was there yet, at least with the EVM compatible chain. Um, so it was really, I mean, as we were building, it was sort of the choice of where do we go and where do we deploy? And that choice was informed purely by the ecosystem and what tooling was available to us. Whereas I think now people are spoiled for choice, right? You can basically, whatever you want to deploy, there's a, there's a very well-formed ecosystem everywhere. So it would be pretty easy for you to deploy almost anything on, you know, Arbitrum, Optimism, uh, Mainnet, Phantom, uh, Cello, you know, there's just Avalanche. There's so many different things. So that was fascinating. As we're building, looking at that whole sort of scaling solution war and everything that was being released and, okay, where do we plant our, our flag? So it was fascinating to see that in DeFi. Reiterating to all you explained before, there's the next question. I'm sure listeners want to know more about how did you handle security in the product? How safe is it? Which precautions were taken? Yeah. So like I, like I, like I said a bit before, we did a, an audit through Code Arena. And we ourselves had actually done a lot of smart contract auditing in a consulting capacity. So we, I guess you could call us previous smart contract auditors. So we knew how that whole process worked. And um, yeah, I, I think we thought that the, the model Code Arena was championing was one of the better ones because the auditors were really incentivized way more perhaps than in other firms to find bugs. You know, the, the, the financial reward was scaled based on what they found, which was only the case in Code Arena. So that's why we went with Code Arena and we put out the $50,000 bounty. We also obviously had loads of tests and I talked about the testing frameworks. And if you go to our website, float.capital, you can scroll all the way to the bottom and you can see the results of our audits. You can see um, some smart contract upgrade audits. We've had ByteRocket help, help us audit that. We also have a Munified Bug Bounty. We have also sitting on our homepage there, uh, contract coverage. So if you hit contract coverage, it basically shows you our smart contracts and of, of our test suite, it shows you exactly the percentage of statements, branches, functions, lines that have been triggered through the, the, the writing of our tests. So you can check that out, which is really cool. And you can see line by line, okay, this line got triggered 300 times during testing or 678 times. So, yeah, I mean, coming from auditing sort of ish background, obviously we're pretty hyper aware on security, but that being said, you know, just like everyone should be prudent. We make no, we make no guarantees on anything and everyone's human. So, uh, or everything in DeFi people should know it has, 
um, a lot of risk and even us taking all this precaution, all this testing, all this auditing, uh, people shouldn't consider any DeFi protocols 100% safe by any means because, quite frankly, they, they're not, even though people test everything tons, tons, tons. So just, I guess, the inner security person in me, be cautious and, yeah, definitely in DeFi, just, just know that even with all of this testing and stuff. I mean, we've seen it. If you go to Rekt News, you see every other week this protocol's been exploited, this protocol's been exploited. And sure, some protocols um, test better than others. But yeah, just, just a word of caution for everyone to to <laughs> obviously remember. There's a lot of risk in the industry, which is super cool. But yeah, there's a lot of risk. While developing your product in DeFi space, uh, it's almost always a must to be in close contact with a lot of people in the crypto community. Who were people or products that helped you out? Who would you like to highlight? Oh, uh, through the products that helped us out. Um, initially, I guess we got some... Uh, we met the Matic team in India, so it was cool. They they gave us um, some support. The, the Avalanche team that we met in Lisbon gave us support. Um, our team gave us support. We've had a whole lot of markets and, and integrations, so we've had support from a whole host of protocols. Um, Benki, uh, Trader Joe, Code Arena have given us support, uh, good ghosting. Oof, reality cards. Uh, I mean, there's there's been so many different protocols, which has been really cool. I mean, even Olympus have given us support. Uh, Chainlink have given us good support. The Graph have given us good support. Um, Poap have always given us good support. I mean, lots of different protocols. Um, you know, everyone is, you know, helping each other, which is which is really awesome, and it's a positive sum game. So yeah, there's been lots of products protocols that have given us good support and i mean we use Aave, for example Chainlink, etc all pretty extensively on what we've built and yeah without these networks these protocols would be very difficult to to build what we've built there is this uh, red team versus blue team exercise uh in evaluation of uh, cybersecurity or, or, com or, or companies Let's pretend we are in the so-called red team and consider some worst possible scenarios. What difficulties in onboarding and getting access for the new users do you see in the future? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Let me know if I'm interpreting it correctly, but basically what we are looking at are from the, the red team, which is more the, the skeptics, what are the the barriers to entry of uh, regular people getting involved sort of in this web three DeFi space. Am I, yeah. am I hearing you correctly? You're cool. completely right. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I mean, key safety, key safety is, is huge, right? I mean, there's a lot of cool solutions. Argent DeFi wallet is really, really nice where you have um, a smart contract wallet, you have guardians, you have time locks, you have limits. Like, I really like that, but it's got its drawbacks as well. Um, notably, it's also, you know, sometimes quite expensive having a smart contract wallet. Things can go wrong. You don't necessarily have the same deterministic address on, on every single network. 
um, key management, I think, is the is the huge issue. And you know, people getting fished, it it sucks. Like there's no there's no take backs in crypto, right? Which is cool, but also <laughs> there's no take backs. Like if you mess up, you you mess up. So I think we're very used to in the normal world, like having take backs, and if something happens with credit card fraud or you know this or that the the bank is there to save us and i think people are going to realize that doesn't happen in crypto so that's why some people are reluctant so i mean if we can just keep improving like security that would be really really good like how do people more safely store their keys and not get fished and you know not have issues like that and we even see experienced people um, very experienced people falling prey to these things by somehow interacting with the malicious front end or giving their seed phrase. So, man, yeah, hopefully we can just keep 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 up the good work and keep improving key security. Is there any possible technical limitations for further product development? Wow, um, I guess that is a, a great question i guess scaling is maybe one of the things that come to mind um i don't i mean i'm more building one level above so i'm not as plugged into to roll-ups and the merge but i mean i will i will tell you i chat, was chatting with one of the eth2 core devs in lisbon in september last year and he was telling me about um you know, the latest te test net, the merge, um, all the scaling that's happening, sharding. Um, and it was it was really cool chatting to him. I think there's a lot of smart people working on that. And I'd say right now, not the biggest technical limit limitations, but like right now, the biggest innovation that's still happening is all of that work that's going on right now. So we've seen so much cool breakthrough there. And I think we've got to be patient but there's a lot of scalability that is, is coming and it's, it's, it's on its way with all of these things. So yeah, excited to see how that progresses over the coming year. You told us a lot about what you do for your users, but uh, what will keep Float Capital floating, pun intended, and selling in DeFi space? What's your business model? <laughs> uh, great pun. So I think many of you know for DeFi protocols, you know, if you're handling, handling financial flows, there's a couple of standard ways. Um, there's basically mint fees, there's redemption fees, there's a percentage of total sort of, I guess, TVL or AUM. Like that could be, I don't know, 2% per annum. So in our alpha, we're actually not um, charging any fees, but our unstaking fee. Uh, it was more just we want to get user insights and we wanted as little fees as possible to as many people and as many eyeballs and floats as possible. But our, our, our kind of stance is mint and redemption fees are a break in composability. So we have tokenized assets and for any other protocols to leverage and use our, our product, if you're charging mint and redemption fees, um, that's just sort of a, a break in composability because people are instantly realizing losses um, on the on the minting. Kind of like if Aave had a, a mint fee, we'd be less you know um, inclined to use Aave because 
we couldn't just use Aave for one week. We would know if we put it in there and we experienced this mint fee, we want to keep it in for at least, you know, maybe two or three months to be able to offset it, right? So same with Yearn Finance. Like they wouldn't, Yearn Finance wouldn't be using Aave as much because people who want to come in and out of Yearn Finance, you know, don't want to be impacted by these big fees. So basically what I'm getting to is our opinion is that taking a, a small percentage, let's say 30 bips or something of the total value locked in the protocol um, over the year is the way to go. Um, so there's, there's actually, you know, a lot of really easy ways to, to monetize DeFi protocols that um, when the DeFi protocol gets to volume, the users are barely feeling these fees. They're really minuscule and they don't mind paying them. Um, and they shouldn't because there's good infrastructure being, you know, provided and good value being provided and it provides good revenue streams for users. So, uh, for, for the, for the protocol. So yeah, it will be, um, some basis point fee of the value locked, um, in future alphas and versions. Let's talk about the market more broadly. Is there anyone who you consider your competitors and how do you differentiate? Good question. There are, of course, people building similar types of things, long, short, tokenized assets. Um, there's more close competitors. There's more broad competitors. Uh, so there's a lot of different types of protocols that are building, and that's exciting. I guess if no one was building at all in our space, we'd maybe start to second-guess ourselves, like, is this something that people want? So we really welcome it and we enjoy that there's um, innovation being had alongside us. I think what really sets us apart is, I mean, a number of different things, our, our engineering practices and our mechanisms, the fact that our assets settle extremely quick, there's no liquidations, they, they tokenized. Um, the fact that we have um, so, sort of the faster settlement. And if you go on to our, our website, what's really cool is that it's it's not just DeFi, but it's also social. You can see very easily on your profile all of your positions. You can collect gems, 250 gems, every single day that you mint a position. Um, these gems allow you to level up and unlock certain NFTs, which is really cool. Um, we also have the Floatonians leaderboard. How cool is that? You can look at every single user who's ever interacted with the protocol and right now there are roughly 5,460 users and you can order all of these by their number of transactions who is the first people to be here um, who are the original gangsters who's accrued the most alpha float and you can click on any single one of these um, user addresses and you can see all of their positions all of their trades their portfolio balances um when they joined their number of transactions. So we just make it, it really cool and fun. And I mean, you can just go on float.capital and, and check that out. Um, the barriers to entry are, are really small. I mean, you can just click between the two, the different markets. You can mint anything in under a minute. So we make everything extremely simple. And on top of that, I'll go out and say we probably have the fastest multi-chain experience in, in all of Web3. I guess that's a big statement, but... If you don't believe me, head over to float.capital in the top right. I mean, just click and, and switch between Polygon and, and Avalanche and you'll see it's like sub-second switch times. It's just so smooth. Um, a lot of that is down to some of the Chad engineering 
people like Jason championing that and ensuring our entire stack is written in some DGEN fully functional rescript, which is a basically a, a brand new language um, that that's that's just badass. It just means we can uh, we can refact our code uh, really nicely and make things blazingly fast. Um, everything's always compiling while you're writing code, which is epic. Uh, yeah, so I mean, those are just a few things that are differentiating us. Um, I would say the biggest thing is, you know, we are we are extremely building a builder centric team. Uh, pretty much all of us are computer scientists, mathematicians, physicists, actuaries, and we're focusing on solving hard problems and shipping really good code. To sum it up and attract some people from our listeners, uh, who's the target market for a product? That's a great question. Um, so I'd say some of the best use cases we've seen afloat right now are users um, using positions to hedge out uh, their portfolio. So we said tokenized long and short positions. So it's quite easy for you to use a tokenized short position to say um, hedge out your exposure to say, for example, price movements in ohm or, or whatever it may be so yeah it would just be any dgens who are interested in uh, using a really cool product to augment their portfolio and perhaps um, hedge out exposure or users who would like to very easily gain um, leveraged exposure to an asset class without the risk of liquidation and take short-term directional um, punts i.e let's say you want to have a, a 3x leveraged um a long position on ether for a short period of time as you believe the price is going wanting to go up without the the risk of liquidation you can um, come on to float and buy that tokenized product what are float capital's goals for the future and how do you plan to accomplish these goals yeah so our goals are uh, we currently in the process of building a really, really cool and powerful V2 that extends the, the alpha. So we've learned lots and lots from having the markets live and traded over 5,000 users in the last six months. It's been, you know, really, <laughs> really eye-opening getting so much feedback and realizing things that we can improve. So we, um, we, for those of you who don't know, we closed a $5 million funding round about three months ago and we are well capitalized and we are basically just taking our time to now build a very, very good and improved on V2. So something that will be coming over the next couple months with lots of different improvements um, and lots of flexibility. So it will allow us to really... Um, provide a lot more experimentation on the markets and make sure we can basically provide the best possible um, tokenized long and short market that exists in, in DeFi. So yeah, the plan is we, we're doing a lot of building right now. We're also wanting to open source a lot of uh, the tools we've developed, release them to the community. Um, some things we've done on the graph, some things we've done in the smart contract testing, like I've said. So yeah, a bunch of those different things, man. It's it's building season. <laughs> That's what we're up to. We do not touch current news, but we are definitely seeing a kind of bear market at the moment. What are your thoughts about the future for the whole DeFi market? Yeah, so, I mean, we've, we've seen this before. These 
drawdowns and, you know, the, these things happen. So, look, I think the future for the DeFi market is just the builders need to keep on building and knuckle down and maybe there will be, you know, everything's going to quieten down a bit over the next few months and that will just provide the opportunity for more laser focus to look forward and, you know, ignore all of the noise on, on Twitter and everywhere else and keep innovating and build cool products. I mean, not everything that can be built in DeFi has been built yet. There's still so much uh, solution space to explore. So I think we're just going to see people continue to build, which is exciting. More and more things coming. Thank you for these insights. We'd like to get to know you better. We believe people invest in people, and that's why we ask our guests to spend some time on personal questions. We want to understand your values and how they influence your decisions. And uh, my first question is, uh, the crypto landscape is very mosaic. Lots of people with different uh, opposing opinions. What do you consider the worst advice you see or hear in defying crypto? <laughs> Uh, that's a fun question. I guess the worst advice I probably see or hear is like, I would say pretty maximalist takes like this is the way or this is the best or you should only buy X or this is going to be the best. Um, I think those types of people can be quite close-minded and it's quite humbling, I think, when a lot of them are, are potentially proved wrong. So I think it's just important to consider a wide variety of opinions and consider that there's a lot of smart people building in different directions and not everything absolutely has to be the best or the worst or right or wrong. There's lots of different trade-offs and you know some things are better at some things and worse at other things. So I would just take take all the suggestions and maximalism with a, a grain of salt. There's lots of good stuff being done out there by lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. So yeah, take, take all the maximalism. I think you, you hear with it, with a grain of salt. I heard rumors. There's a life beyond decentralized finance. What obsessions do you explore on your free time? If you have any, do you have any hobby? Yeah, uh, there, there is sometimes life beyond DeFi, believe it or not. I enjoy playing chess, which is pretty fun. Um, so if anyone ever wants to play chess, hit me up. I enjoy wild camping sometimes, which is cool, which is basically, you know, we spend so much time in technology in front of the computer, in front of our screens, and it's really rewarding to get out in nature. And just take your backpack and camp and don't look at any screens and just get away from everything. So I really enjoy getting out um, in nature on, on the weekends and in evenings. I enjoy yeah playing chess, um, enjoy a bit of cycling, maybe a run. Cooking can always be fun. Make a mean Thai curry. So yeah, there's a couple of things I'm doing. Everyone who builds in DeFi lives at a crazy pace and it's very challenging to stay in shape. The daily routine is very important to stay productive in the long run. Do you have any morning rituals? What do the first hour of your day look like? 
So my 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 morning rituals, poof, they fluctuate a bit. So I guess let me talk about my evening rituals and I guess this is maybe only the last two evenings, so it's not really representative. But I've actually just bought a really nice big candle and <laughs> before I go to bed, instead of having a bedside lamp, I just light the candle and I just try chill out, have some ambient light and, you know, go back to, I mean, I guess back in the olden days, candles were all there were for light. So that's just a nice way to de-stress, not look at my phone before bed and then try get a, a good night's sleep. So, I mean, it's only, it's only been two nights. You can check in with me in a few months and tell me if I'm, I'm I'll tell you if I'm still lighting the candle. <laughs> Sounds romantic. What would constitute a perfect day for you? Oof. Um, waking up early in the morning, maybe going on a nice long run or walk through nature, coming home and maybe making oof, some bacon and eggs and then sitting on the couch and watching a video of people playing chess or something like that and then writing some really good code that's super satisfying and then after that seeing some friends and having a relaxed evening you know who knows what doing playing around maybe some board games uh, maybe maybe cooking a dinner together listening to some music and relaxing i think that's playing or going to the beach you know at sunset taking some sundowners playing some footy on the beach Yeah, I think that's that's tops. From perfect days, let's talk about perfect places, since you visited so many with all that hackathons. Is there some place in the world you have visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Uh, you, um, again, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I'd say I've really enjoyed... Um, which places did I enjoy the most? I, I enjoyed going to India. That was that was a lot of fun hacking over there. I think that was just maybe where we had the most enthusiasm. We just were like super, super enthusiastic about the ideas, what we were building, and we just had high energy and I remember two AM walking the walking the streets just talking about like the cool stuff we were building. We were just so excited. So yeah, I think that was it. What is the best or most worthwhile investment you've ever made? And uh, I do not mean an investment of money. It could be time, manager, or any other resources. I would say I studied computer science, so I always learned coding. And I knew code, but if you really want to get better at coding, you have to build some side projects and, like, you know, want to pursue it. And I think one of the best investments was just actually really taking that plunge and spending the time on weekends, you know, tinkering, being curious and and building with code. So I think it was, yeah, just taking the time to, to get better and, and enjoy coding. It was cool. Talking about being curious, do you have the book or books uh, that you have given most as a gift or recommend often? 
Uh, I don't know if anyone's watched or actually read the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, but I generally, because I read so much technical stuff when I read books to wind down, I like to read like fiction books. And yeah, I really enjoyed the, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I can recommend. So that's that's one to, to read that series. Proceeding with the book stuff, do you have any quote you live your life by or think about often? Yeah, so uh, there's a, a line in a movie Matthew McConaughey said a long time ago, but then he says some line and then he goes, L-I-V-I-N, living. So basically just, that was, it's pretty cool. If you read his book, Green Lights, that was actually improvised. He obviously forgot the G off the end of it, but basically that's sort of the spirit of it, you know, just just living, just not, taking anything too seriously, putting one foot in front of the next and, you know, trying to be present in the moment and enjoy sort of every day for what it is. Because life is just, you know, these series of days that are consecutively clumped up together. Sounds like a great advice. Let's dream a little. If you have a crystal ball and crystal ball could tell you the truth about the future or present or anything else, what would you want to know? Um, I would probably like to know uh, what what country should I live in? What country will I be living in in five years? That would maybe be quite interesting. Um, or, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a good one. But actually, I mean, I like not knowing. There, I, I, I'm actually going to say I don't want to know anything from the future. I think that would be not fun. I prefer not having a crystal ball telling me. I mean, there's the obvious ones, like what are the lotto numbers in five years' time? But even still, I don't want to know what the future lotto numbers are. I think that would not be fun winning the lotto either, um, in most cases. Um, people have lists of crazy things, like skydiving, going to Antarctica, going into space. Is there something you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Yeah, I, I want to go to the north of, I think it's Iceland, and I'd be keen to just like stay in a remote hut very far north in Iceland. So that's what I'm keen to do at some point. It sounds like a very beautiful experience. For what in your life do you feel the most grateful? Well, um, I mean, personally, I'm just really grateful for all my relationships, my family and loved ones. You know, that's definitely what I'm most grateful for. I think I'm very fortunate to have um, close people around me. Yeah, so that's that. And that was my last question. And my very last one, do you have any ask or request or advice for our audience? Some last parting words. Hey, man. I mean, thanks for everyone for taking the time to listen. That's really, really cool. And I hope you had an interesting time. Like, if you have any questions, please don't feel afraid to shoot me a Twitter DM or let's chat or, or hang out. And obviously, I know it's been pr pretty rough few days in crypto Twitter, but, you know, things things will pass. So let's just keep keep going. We're all going to be 
we're all going to be good. Let's just put one foot ahead. And yeah, before we know it, uh, things are going to get better and better and better. Thank you for coming on the show. Epic. Thank you for having me, Ron. That was awesome. It was great speaking with you. I wish you good luck in all your future endeavors. Hey, massively appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time. Looking forward to catching you next time. And thanks to all our listeners as well. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and glad to have you here. We wish you all the best in your life and career. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Discord. If you are new to the show, we release a new episode every few days. For those of you who are regular listeners, please share the show with those around you. We will be back soon with more insights from expert guests from across the world. Have a great day. See you next time.